suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moorahan, and my brother JS to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Welcome to our podcast number 129. Part 8 of The Man Whom Women Loved. The story of the wild life of Peter Beard, the world-famous fashion and wildlife photographer whose infinite attraction to women was matched by only two things. Their attraction to him and Peter Beard's Neil Young-like self-acknowledged willingness to leave people behind. Ordinary people like myself might call this betraying one's friends. Young people today might refer to such action as ghosting someone, an action likely to cause someone pain. But what if other people's pain was not something that you recognized, cared for, or even worried about? What then? For Peter Beard, this was normal, everyday life. He lived, he acted, he befriended whom he would befriend. He loved whom he would love. And he stopped seeing people he no longer wished to see. It was as simple as that. Explanation? Not necessary. Apologies? Not in his playbook, with rare exception. And usually only when there were a part of an undisclosed hidden agenda on Beard's part. He simply pinballed through life as he wished. You were there with him when he wanted you to be with him or when he needed you to be with him, but not when you needed him. You were not his concern. Never were. Never will be. That's the mindset that brought Beard's friend um, Terry Matthews, an experienced safari gar guide and a former wildlife hunter, when still legal. Um, it brought him to a near-death experience when he was gored by a rhino in Nairobi National Park, not far from Savo East, where we will return to the story of those man-eating lions that we introduced in our last episode. Peter Beard and his self-produced wild man myth over the decades had produced real controversies over his over-the-top recklessness and less-than-wholehearted commitment to the idea of truth, wherein, by Beard's interpretation, truth was that liquid, not a solid. In today's world of alternative facts, Beard would feel right at home. What is taking a backseat to what one feels? In, in um, the 1980s, ABC TV conceived and filmed a TV feature entitled Last Word from Paradise, Peter Beard in Africa. And the producers enticed Beard's longtime friend, Terry Matthews, to consult with the production staff, stalking Africa's big game by cameras rather than by guns, Beard and Matthews headed out into the field 
uh, field with a team of, of photographic experts and approached a very closely um, a massive female rhinoceros, which, as will become obvious in just a moment, believed that her calf was at risk and threatened by all these intruders with all their equipment. And when the enraged female charged toward the photographic team, Peter Beard turned and sprinted out of the way, past Matthews, whom now given his proximate position relative to that maddened rhino became the primary target of her rage. Matthews screaming bugger off as the rhino charged him may confirm his standing in a long line of stoic, cool customers, another example of, of British bravado in the face of immediate existential danger, but proved to be of no value in impeding or preventing the charge of the pissed-off two-ton matron who was on a mission. And Matthews was impaled at mid-thigh, and the beast slashed its horn upwards, as rhinos do by instinct, perfected by the species in the face of what it deems existential risk after 50 million years on planet Earth. And it, it, it raised its horn uh, about a foot and a half upwards into Matthew, uh, Matthew's pelvis and abdominal cavities. And it broke multiple ribs, broke his leg. And miraculously, his, that horn stopped like a quarter inch or so from Matthew's uh, heart. And against all odds... Um, and despite all his grievous injuries, uh, Matthew survived. He and his wife subsequently filed suit against uh, Peter Beard and ABC. Um, the case dragged on, as you might imagine, for years. And finally, as these things tend to do, uh, it was settled out of, a, out of court. But Matthews never spoke uh, to Beard again. He blamed him always and, and ref refused to even speak to Beard for the remainder of his days. And he had stated that he thought Peter wanted to get this animal to charge because he just wanted a sensational picture. And many who, who knew Peter Beard believed it was only a matter of time before a tragedy such as this had struck some unfortunate person following Beard into the bush. Um, he was reckless and somebody was going to pay for it. It just happened to be, to be at the time his friend Matthews. East of Nairobi National Park, where Matthews was injured, lies the great game reserve, Savo East. And this is truly where the wild things are and were. Um, in the 1890s, Great Britain, under the reign at the time of Queen Victoria, uh, had seen its far-flung empire expand to include a quarter of the planet, with, with you know, having less than 3% of the world's population and barely 3% of its landmass, the British at that time controlled 40% of the world's trade. And in British East Africa, um, newly acquired territory, ex explored by um, the likes of 
Stanley and Livingston and, and Sir Richard Burton, the great, the great names in African discovery, now enc encompassed in Southeast Africa, um, clove laden Zanzibar, uh, of which I toured this past uh, summer and it was phenomenal. Great swaths of the, the arid plains um, with nearly impenetrable thickets of thorn. Yeah, the Great Rift Valley where Homo sapiens had its origin. The Old Divide Gorge, home of the, oh, of the Nutcracker Man, Mount Kilimanjaro. And, and lush tropics that encompass the lands near the immense inland lake of Lake Victoria. That was British Southeast Africa. And... In 1895, influential British politicians decided that the region needed to be made economically more viable, more profitable via construction of a railway line that would run from the coast near Mombasa to Kampala, Uganda. And after fierce debate in the British Parliament, it was decided to fund the construction of the Uganda Railway. It was it was recognized it was going to be a stupendous engineering challenge requiring superb talents. And, uh, you know, about this was there was no doubt there was this was never in dispute. This was this was Victorian Britain, where all things were possible. You know, the sun never set on the British Empire and all that. But to many in Parliament, um, the railway across the southeastern African continent appeared to be nothing, nothing but a harebrained scheme, a boondoggle at best, likely resulting in an economic and engineering fiasco, such as, as proved um, the disastrous French Panama Canal project fiasco, which was had just been undertaken. And still, despite the the prodigious engineering difficulties to be faced and overcome. The, the railway project had cabinet-level backing and support from powerful politicians like uh, Lord George Curzon. The railway project would be funded and undertaken by Great Britain. And many of the logistical, engineering, construction, and financial risks were understood, and there were attempts to quantify them, um, at least as best they could. You know, those known unknowns. You know the type, the known unknowns, the type of which had been spoken of by U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, you know, a hundred years later, um, and that he referenced with respect to war, but still the idea of known unknowns. But Rumsfeld spoke also of unknown unknowns. You know, those risks impossible to quantify. And the media, the U.S. media had a field day with the unknown unknowns of Rumsfeld. But Rumsfeld was right about that. There are some risks that exceed the knowable. They are pure uncertainties. They can't be seen. They can't be measured. They, they defy predictability. Well, welcome to TIA in the 1890s. This is Africa. Pro progress on the railway system proceeded from Mombasa relatively smoothly 
um, relatively on time and relatively within budget un- until the construction team reached Savo East in, Ke- in what we know today as Kenya. It is there we meet those ferocious lions of Savo East who eat the railroad construction team, principally consisting of coolies. Those are man-eaters. And those are the man-eaters we referenced in our last podcast episode. The two extremely large, ferocious, aggressive, fearsome, mean lions that roamed, stalked, terrorized, tore apart, killed, and then ate about a hundred coolie African and British railway construction workers that had been hired by Britain in the late 19th century to lay the nearly 600 miles of narrow-gauge railway, railway, railway tracks that had been required on what would become known to history as the Lunatic Express that ran from Mombasa to Kampala. In, in 1898, a true big-game hunter had to be brought into the situation personally lead the efforts to track down and kill the man-eating lions of Savo East. These uh, man-eaters whose, whose taste for humans grew as quickly and as brazenly as did their attacks upon help, the helpless and terrified construction crews just had to end. And Progress on the line had stalled and the costs had risen dramatically as the lions tormented the terrified team. And these lions were were not the the rather passive, easygoing, that might be an exaggeration, but the easygoing type of lions, though still impressive predators that roam today through the Maasai Mara, the Serengeti, and the wilds of Botswana, the kind I've seen on numerous safaris, and as did Peter Beard when he did his walkabouts in Kenya. No, these these lions were vicious, rapacious predators. They were hunters. Um, the British authorities just had to bring this to you know to an end, and they hired the renowned big game hunter, who was himself an engineer, his name was J.H. Patterson, and he was hired to do the job, to track down and kill these lions. And he set about doing it. But he did it, but not before and not without there being a great deal of trauma involved in doing so. Patterson, with his um, assembled support team, Um, took to the bush and began stalking the man-eaters that were stalking the railway crew. And as an experienced hunter, uh, he and his uh, fellow um, uh, guides and trackers followed paw prints, boar, and other signs that only experienced trackers knew. He, He set traps and lures, all of which the two giant male lions assiduously of either avoided or overcame. And the killings of the crew went on seemingly unabated for months. No matter what Patterson could do, he could not track down and kill these lions. And the crew began to mutiny. They hadn't signed up for this sort of work under these conditions. Um, but 
Then Patterson got a got a bit lucky. He saw his prey in the bush and began to close in and tracked it down. And the first lion he tracked down, he shot several times, but only wounding the beast. This was now this was now quite problematic, inasmuch as one wounded but very pissed off lion now began stalking Patterson. Whoa! This was a complication that worried even a man as experienced and fearless as was Patterson. Eventually, a very wary, very alert, adrenaline-fueled Patterson was able to kill the wounded lion. Finally, but only after a heart shot took it down, thereby saving himself a mauling. It hadn't been easy, that's for sure. Yet still, one beast roamed free, awaiting Patterson to deal with it. As, you know, as, is, as is often said, if you choose to go after the king, you need to kill the king. One bad boy was down, but one remained. Patterson had completed only half the assignment. Now, the second massive male, he tracked it down for nearly three weeks. And on day 20, an exhausted mosquito and tsetse fly ravaged, exhausted J.H. Patterson finally took down the second male. But only after shooting the monster eight times before the nearly one year-long episode of Man versus Beast, this confrontation had finally been brought to a close. You know, this may, this may be a little bit off point. Well, it's, it's all off point, but you, you read about Patterson and the man-eaters of Savo, and you can comprehend why absent a bazooka the condemned Christians stood no chance of not being torn to shreds in their coerced confrontations against lions and leopards in those much-publicized, very popular man-versus-beast matchups that Roman emperors and, and 50,000 bloodthirsty Roman attendees you know, they so thoroughly enjoyed in the packed Roman Colosseum two millennia earlier. I mean, how were these supposed the how were these Christians armed with nothing more than sticks and maybe a spear? How were they to take on these wild beasts? Wow. So anyway, back to Patterson. It took eight porters, eight porters to carry the huge carcass of the second man-eater back to Patterson's camp. Patterson had proven to be the right man, perhaps the only man capable of ending the threat the two man-eating lions had posed the Lunatic Express. And that railway, which by the way cost nearly 10,000 pounds per mile of, of track laid, and remember, 10,000 pounds in 1898 was a lot of money. But for numerous reasons, it never proved profitable for the Brits. All this effort had been expended for nothing. Today, you know, in the 1960s, when Peter B. 
beard was roaming on his walkabouts. Lions that huge no longer roamed Sabo East or anywhere, in fact, in Africa or anywhere in the world. At the time, Peter Beard was wandering about the Serengeti or Savo Each, which, which, by the way, is twice the size of Yellowstone National Park, to give it some perspective. Um, as Bob Dylan so memorably sang, the winds of change do shift, and the encroachment of civilization, people, hunting, agriculture, the lion's of this size, of this magnitude, of this ferocity, they just didn't exist any longer. But Beard was famous for courting whatever danger he could on his walkabouts, and he needlessly exposed himself and those with him to danger. It wasn't bravery, courage, or fearlessness. It was merely reckless stupidity. And he and Beard had a an unquenchable, insatiable, a lust for chaos. You know, that friend gored by a rhino, his life diminished forever after, Beard himself later suffering his goring at the hands of a maddened female elephant who didn't take too well to Beard walking on foot so close to her calf. Beard paid for it nearly with his life. And the interesting part of all this is no one who knew Peter Beard, found any of this surprising. It was totally within his character. Whether he himself was harmed or his friends were harmed meant nothing to him. Quite a wild man, I would say. Hey, thanks for living, and we'll be back as we approach the end of the Peter Beard story, The Man Whom Women Loved. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Inside came just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I belong Everything I'm also Just a drop of rain and a thunderstorm Another grain of sand on the beach A blade How could I miss what was in front of me? Two eyes that can't make you see. It's the mind that paints all these pictures, like the mirage of the deserts. I misread all the signals, I never knew. That I'd be lost I thought goes from way back in my past Never knew how much it cost 
mistakes It's things that I've done I can tell and I've broken the heart Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling apart? I hope that she knows that I meant no harm My demons, they led me astray I trust that she 